0: Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. Laurel and I are at the tail end of a very long two-month process of going through each individual cinematic installment of the Harry Potter universe. We are finally at the end. This will be the last one... Psych they split the last one into two movies. And we're also, so not only are we on Harry Potter Watch, we're also officially on Baby Watch. Laurel could go into labor at any moment. While we're recording this episode, we might just have the baby and record it here in the podcast studio. We'll just
1: bring the Zoom recorder with us to the hospital if it happens.
0: Absolutely. So at any point in time, we could be going into labor. Laurel could be going into labor specifically. So there is a small chance, but a chance nonetheless, that you won't get part two of the Deathly Hallows right away if Laurel ends up going into labor.
1: Yeah, let's uh, let's just keep our fingers crossed for whatever kind of situation it is.
0: Obviously, when the baby comes, we're going to take some time off from the podcast to adjust to our life with a newborn. But uh, we do plan on podcasting throughout 2021 with a lot of ideas. It's also it's almost Christmas. If you keep Christmas in your heart, it is that very special time of year. We're not doing a quote unquote Christmas episode per se. But one thing you can say about Harry Potter is Christmas is in every single installment to one degree or another.
1: Except for the last one, except for the one we're going to do next week after Christmas. So because Christmas is in this one.
0: Correct. That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So we is timed in this it one. just right. Absolutely. A um, lot to get to, a lot to talk about with the Deathly Hallows part one. Very excited. I hope everyone's been enjoying this. Harry Potter, you know, experience. I've really enjoyed it. This year, not only have we done this rewatch and talk about Harry Potter, I also reread all of the books this year. So Harry Potter has been on our mind and can't wait to roll up the sleeves and get to work on this one. But before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing.
1: Well, oh gosh, my thing is, I'm going to ask you for a Christmas present this year. The greatest gift that you could give to us at The Midnight Myth costs you no money at all, and you don't have to deal with the postal service or any delays in shipping. It's just a five-star rating or review in the uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen, uh, if you wouldn't mind dropping us a five-minute review uh that would be amazing it helps us get out there and it feels really really good warms our heart this holiday season uh if you have any thoughts if you want to dialogue with us if you want to chat we're always there on social media we're on twitter at the midnight myth we're on facebook and instagram at midnight myth podcast uh and we are on the web at midnightmyth.com where you can find lots of extra content that's also where you can support us on patreon or pick up some merch Uh, Just a reminder that our Patreon proceeds for November and December lining up with our Harry Potter series are going to the Transgender Law Center, supporting the trans agenda for liberation. Uh, We love you, our trans brothers and sisters and family and friends. You are amazing. We see you and we validate you.
0: Trans rights are human rights. Let's move on with the show. A very merry Christmas or whatever winter festival you celebrate From the Midnight Myth to you, and if you go to our website and you're so inclined, we do happen to have some sweet Midnight Myth merch. Yeah, we do. If you buy any, give it to a loved one for Christmas. I
1: cannot guarantee it will get there in time, but...
0: (laughs) probably won't at this point, (laughs) but, you know, do it anyway, and that would make us very happy too. All right, on with the show. Let us do our briefest of brief recaps. This is the seventh and the first half of the final installment of the Harry Potter cinematic experience, and it starts with our heroes not going to Hogwarts. Instead, there is a wonderful action set piece where all of Harry's friends and fellow Order of the Phoenix members end up, uh, half of them end up taking Polyjuice Potion to disguise themselves as Harry Potter, to take Harry Potter from his home, which will lose the magical protection that's there when he turns 17, to the Burrows. This quickly gets undone as the Death Eaters and Lord Voldemort himself show up. Poor Hegwig and Mad-Eye Moody end up dead in this battle, and Harry Potter barely escapes with his life. At the Burrow. We see that it is Bill Weasley's wedding day to Flor Delacour, and there's a bit of a merry mood, but before the wedding, the Minister of Magic comes along with Dumbledore's bequests. He gives Ron the Deluminator, Hermione a copy of Beetle Labard, Harry Potter gets the snitch that he first caught, as well as the sword of Godric Giffindor. However, the sword has gone missing. The wedding seems like a pretty good affair. Harry Potter learns from a friend of Albus Dumbledore that he really didn't know anything about Dumbledore's personal life and barely actually knew the man at all, calling into question his very quest for the whole crux that Harry Potter left him. Then a Patronus comes and it warns everyone that the Minister ha- the Ministry of Magic has fallen. The Minister of Magic has dead. Voldemort has successfully taken over the legitimate governing wing of the muse of the Wizarding World, and a bunch of Death Eaters attack the wedding, causing Ron and Hermione and Harry to escape to London. There we learn that Hermione has a bag with a uh, undetectable enlargement charm, which has everything that they need from a tent to books to change of clothes, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione decide they are going to go on the run by themselves and hunt down these horcruxes. They end up sneaking into the Ministry of Magic after they learn that one of their horcruxes, the locket from the Half-Blood Prince, was actually in the possession of Dolores Umbridge. They disguise themselves as Ministry, sneak in, and end up taking the locket from Umbridge. However, Ron gets splinched, which means Part of his body when they apparated out of there was left behind on his arm and is severely injured without any medical aid. This is where they realize the Horcruxes are not so easy to destroy and Ron, not being able to apparate, they decide that they're going to travel on foot. Without a doubt, I'd say this is one of the darkest moments of the whole Harry Potter franchise as they end up keeping the Horcrux on them and one by one getting succumbed to its innate evil, ultimately leading to Ron abandoning Ron and her, I'm sorry, Ron abandoning Harry and Hermione flat. Hermione and Harry decide that they need to go to Godric's Hollow. They think there they might find a Hulkrux, but instead they find the woman, I forget her name, Bagshot.
1: a Bagshot. Bagshot,
0: yeah. who wrote the history of magic has been taken over by the snake Nagini and Ron and Hermione, I'm sorry, Harry and Hermione, I keep doing that, barely escape with their lives. Not to mention that Harry's wand gets destroyed in the battle with Nagini. At this, the most lowest point probably of Harry Potter's life, certainly of this film, then suddenly he sees a doe patronus that leads him to a frozen pool of water where he sees the sword of Gryffindor at the bottom of the water. Uh, Harry and Hermione had already figured out that the Blade is goblin made and only takes in that which makes it stronger since Harry destroyed Tom Riddle's diary in the Chamber of Secrets with a basilisk fang, and that was a Horcrux. When Harry stabbed the basilisk with the sword of Gryffindor, it imprinted basilic venom into the sword, and the sword is now capable of destroying a Horcrux. Harry descends into this cold pool of water to get the sword. However, the Horcrux rebels and almost drowns him until a figure comes and rescues him who turns out to be Ron. Ron used the Deluminator to find his friends after he abandoned them and Ron quickly dispatches with the Horcrux. It is then that Hermione suggests that they see Luna Lovegood's father, the editor of the Quibbler, because she recognizes the symbol in her book of the uh, beetle the bard as the same symbol that he was wearing around his neck so our three heroes go to this scene and there they learn the story of the deathly hallows and the tale of the three brothers we did an entire episode about way back in our first year of the podcast we then learn that luna has been kidnapped by death eaters and mr lovegood actually sells out our three heroes to the death eaters in the hopes that he can trade their lives for luna's When they make the escape from the Lovegood residence, they end up in the clutches of snatchers, folks who are being paid by the ministry to hunt down those whose blood status may be in jeopardy so that they can be taken back to the ministry, they get detained, they get questioned, presumably tortured, and imprisoned should it turn out that they are not pure bloods. The snatchers thinking they may have Harry Potter, but they're not 100% sure because Hermione casts a charm on Harry's face that distorts it. Instead of taking them to the ministry, take them to the Malfoy residence where they hope that Draco Malfoy can identify Harry Potter. Bellatrix, the strange, seeing the sword of Gryffindor, starts to freak out, thinking that the sword should be in her vault in which she ends up torturing and carving the word mudblood into her Hermione Granger's arm. Our Ron and Harry end up being locked in the dungeons where Dobby comes and springs them free. And in a daring escape, Bellatrix Lestrange ends up throwing a knife into Dobby's heart, killing Dobby, the free elf. And the movie ends.
1: (sighs) Can you imagine if they had tried to squeeze all of this into one movie? All of this, plus the Battle of Hogwarts and everything that happens in part two.
0: Yeah, I don't think you could do it. And without making some serious cuts, it's kind of a common trope now when a adaptation from like a book series is done to kind of draw out the final installment.
1: Yeah. Look at, you know, the Hobbit as the natural, uh, natural progression of that turning a children's book into three lengthy movies. But yeah, in this case, this was really the first one to do it. And just listening to that recap and rewatching it this week, it's like so much happens, uh, in this story. So much happens in the book while also a lot of nothing happens. And the nothing, I think, is also really, really important. Like just the scenes of wandering around the countryside and being uh, under the influence of the Horcrux is all so important and so necessary to not skip over. So I'm really grateful that uh, that this was split. And I'm grateful that we get more Harry Potter.
0: Indeed. And this movie goes from crazy action sequences to long, slow scenes with the characters having very little to do with lots of tension. Um, Do you think this installment holds up? You know, a lot of people rate this as one of the worst of the Harry Potter movies. And I'm just curious, how do you feel about this movie installment?
1: This one actually ranks really highly for me. Uh, Yes, it is uh, part one of two, and so it's very hard for it to stand on its own and be uh, extremely rewatchable on its own um and it is extremely grim like it is it, in in tone it is the grimmest of the series it really has very few high points um and so i merit a lot of the criticisms that people have about it just as a standalone film but i do think that if you you sit and watch this it's beautiful uh it deserves tons of credit for breaking the entire formula of the Harry Potter series so far. There's no Hogwarts, there's no Quidditch, there's no whimsy, there's no like Harry being blown away by some new piece of magic that he's never seen before. It really does do the, uh, you know, I was criticizing Order of the Phoenix recently for not doing the messy character work. And this is one that really is, is willing to do the messy character work while also having stunning visual sequences like The Tale of the Three Brothers, which is just an outstanding, gorgeous sequence, uh, and developing a really uh, powerful expressionistic visual style that pulls us into the emotion and really, really digs us deep into what the characters are feeling. Uh, This, I think, is a very affecting film. Ends with one of the most affecting deaths in the entire series in Dobby, uh, just in how it's handled. Uh, So yeah, I absolutely do think it holds up. I certainly love it. I think there is uh, just a, a ton that is really quite beautiful about it.
0: Yeah, I think that's all very well said. I do agree, I think, with every point. I think this holds up. When I first saw this movie, my main reaction was, Dang, like, whoa, yeah, it's what like did I watch? Walking
1: out of Empire Strikes Back for the first time?
0: It really was it was a lot like that it It left me with a pit in my stomach. Another cinematic experience that was similar was watching um Infinity War and the yeah. end of Infinity War being like, Oh man, oh no, <laughs> and they sink Harry to his lowest point, his lowest of low. He doesn't have Ron. He doesn't have a wand. His, like, get-out-of-jail-free card, which is summoning Dobby to come help him, is gone. Dobby is dead. You have no idea how these characters are going to get through this. I mean, Hermione gets tortured in this. Everything that could be going wrong for these characters goes wrong. The wedding ends in violence. You know, there are a few... I do have a few criticisms of it. Yeah. And I do think those who say that this isn't a good standalone film, it's not supposed to be. It's called part one. It's supposed to be looked at in sequence and in tandem with the second half. And they're not really supposed to be looked at, at least in my opinion, as two separate movies. It was just one really long movie. So I don't really merit the criticism that it doesn't hold up on its own because once you think of it in conjunction with part two, I think it holds up really well. There are just a few things that I think, especially having just reread the books that aren't very clear in the movie that I think they're trying to establish. It's not really clear why Voldemort's looking for the Elder Wand as much as it is in the books. And I hate to be that guy like, well, they did it better in the books, like- A movie is a movie. It's a different medium. You do have to change things to make a strong adaptation. So I'm not like a Harry Potter fundamentalist at all in any way, shape, or form. But it's not really clear what's going on with Voldemort and his wand. It's also not really clear that Harry Potter really doubts his quest as he does in the book. And in the book, he has to make a choice Hallows or Horcruxes. And he chooses Horcruxes, which is to say he chooses to trust Dumbledore. And though we get some like hints that the character doesn't really know if he knows Dumbledore, but at no point do we get the sense that he is willing to trade the quest for the Horcruxes for the Hallows. And I think when you have an installment called the Deathly Hallows, it is incumbent to really make them integral to the hero's story. They're integral to... Voldemort's story, even though it's not really clear, but they really don't make it integral to Harry's story. And I do think that's a little bit of a misstep. I don't know how to correct that. Like, I don't know how to rewrite it. I'm not a screenwriter. Um, Clearly the people that made this movie are fantastic at what they do. So I'm not trying to be hypercritical of them, but it would have been nice to see in this low moment for Harry Potter to maybe be like, do you think Ron is right? you know maybe dumbledore so ron questions dumbledore ron questions the veracity of their quest the merits of their journey but harry never really seems to and i think that is one thing that is missing in this installment
1: yeah i think that's i think that's really fair you know when i remember reading the deathly hallows for the first time and it was really hard to not sit there and imagine how this was going to play out on the big screen. Because at this point, the movies were coming out every year, the books were coming out, uh, and this was the final one. And, you know, anticipating what that was going to be like was a lot of fun. But I remember reading the first half of the book and being like, oh my God, how are they going to do this? Like, this is this is a lot less cinematic than a lot of, uh, you know, other Harry Potter books. And there is a lot of introduction of new rules, of new types of magic uh, and just things that need to be exposited and that are not entirely character-driven. And I think the movie, I don't envy the task of having to introduce things like flesh memory for the snitch or the uh, the fact that they had left out the two-way mirror from Order of the Phoenix that becomes a really important part of this, uh, this installment. There's just a lot of things that they have to try and squeeze in there so that the plot makes sense, uh, that if they... Spent time on all of those little things, it would just slow down the movie even more. So it's a task that I really don't envy. uh, And I think they did kind of the best they could with the hand they were given. Um, But I think those are all really fair criticisms. You know, something that is interesting about this one installment is yes, we have some of the mentors and some of the adults who are left at the beginning, but after the wedding, This is all Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And they have been the core trio of the entire series, but they've never been on their own. And now they're like fully on their own trying to figure out how to save the world. And watching them do that is really interesting, I think, because they're flailing. Like they have no idea what they're doing. And the doubt that is sown between that trio, uh, I think... While in the book, there is this heavy layer of doubt of Dumbledore, the doubt that they feel in each other is also really present in the movie adaptation. And I think that's that's a really interesting thing to watch.
0: I totally agree. I think the most effective moments of this movie are the moments between our three heroes. Are there moments of doubt? Are there moments of jealousy? The moments of rivalry? Watching Ron get affected by the crux and watching you know him listening to the radio just hearing the names of people that have fallen to the death eaters and seeing like seeing his speech when he freaks out on harry and what i think is so effective about it is not only is it really good writing and really good acting and really good directing it really brings to bear true feelings that ron is having feelings of inadequacy He's the best friend of the chosen one. All of the girls want to date Harry. Harry is the most successful. Harry's going to defeat Voldemort. Harry has the attention of Dumbledore. And here is his, you know, best friend sidekick who's always relegated to the side. And him starting to think maybe the girl that I love loves Harry because Everybody loves Harry.
1: Yeah, even my mom seems to like him more than uh, she likes me. Yeah, the the Horcrux is really just amplifying the feelings and tensions that are already there. And you know, when you watch this, uh, it's hard not to it's hard not to flashback. And we started this year with our our case study on the Lord of the Rings. We read through the entire Lord of the Rings series, and it's hard not to compare the Horcrux to the One Ring and the effect that it has on Frodo in particular as the ring bearer. And so watching all three of these characters be uh, ring bearers, be Horcrux bearers to a certain extent, uh, really allows it to amplify those tensions and bring out these, these things that have not been perfect in their relationships for the entire time that they have known each other. You know, every movie, every installment, every Harry Potter book, uh, and I think you mentioned this to me, Derek, as you were reading through it, uh, you know, for the for the first time, for some of the books and for some of them the second time, and you were like, every time they find a way to isolate one member of the trio for at least part of the book. And that's very, very true. There is a, a, there's always something that drives a wedge between the trio and something that has to bring them back together. And here we get to see all of those tensions playing out in this really interesting constellation and in really tight quarters.
0: Yeah. In, I, I think the first one's the only one where it doesn't separate the trio because that's the story of their friendship. But in Chamber of Secrets, you have Hermione gets petrified. Then in um,
1: in Azkaban, uh, Ron is in the hospital wing. Um,
0: as well as Ron and Hermione are fighting the entire time yeah. over whether or not Scabbers was eaten by Cookshanks. Then in, um, after Azkaban is...
1: Is Goblet, where Ron and Harry fall out.
0: Yeah, then in Order of the Phoenix...
1: Harry is isolated because nobody can relate to how he's feeling.
0: Then in um, Half-Blood Prince.
1: There's a wedge drawn between Ron and Hermione and Harry is torn between them because of the love
0: triangle. And then lastly, in this one, you have all of these things coming to a head and Ron, a Gryffindor, chooses to walk out on his call to adventure. And I think that's something that we should pause and reflect on. So I have a few questions about that for you.
1: Yeah, Question
0: one, you compared the Horcrux to the one ring in that its evil sort of corrupts the person who wears it. Do you think it is the dark magic of the Horcrux itself that corrupts or is it Voldemort's soul leaking through that is corrupting? Meanwhile, in other words, is it Voldemort himself that brings out this evil or is it just the fact that this is such a powerful piece of dark magic that the evil comes out?
1: That's a good question and not something I had really thought about. My instinct is to say that it is Voldemort's soul um, because he has been proven in previous installments to be manipulative and to be uh, really easily in tune with people. He's really good at reading people and picking out their weaknesses and preying upon those things. And we have seen this kind of effect before with someone growing close to a horcrux in Ginny Weasley who grew close to Tom Riddle's diary and became totally possessed by it. And that was not because it was a horcrux. That was because Tom was in there listening to her and writing back. So I think I think we have to assume it has something to do with the fragment of Tom Riddle, Voldemort's soul, and the type of person that he is.
0: Yeah, and I think because uh, we also hear in Half-Blood Prince that magic, in particular dark magic, leaves traces. Yeah. But I think the best way to read it is that it's Voldemort that is corrupting and it is his soul coming through the Horcrux. And if you think of how Voldemort in this installment, over the last two installments, I'd say, really sees his power. We can think of his type of authority, the way that he is accessing control of the wizarding world as kind of an infection. He ends up going to places slowly, installing lieutenants, using trickery, using manipulation, and then is ruling from behind the scenes because he doesn't want to declare himself back and declare himself the ruler of the wizarding world. He wants to take advantage of the sort of democratic backsliding that was already present in certain populations of the wizarding community. And all he's doing is just giving it a little push making it go a little faster, taking a little more power to the point where they assassinate the ministry of magic and take over the ministry and turn it into a 100% fascist regime full of concentration camps, propaganda. I mean, the uh, mug blood dangerous flyer is red and black, just the same colors of the Nazis. That's not a coincidence. And they turn the ministry into this fascist regime and the way you see Voldemort infecting the magical world, I think it mirrors the way you see Voldemort as the Horcrux version infecting our heroes.
1: Yeah, he does to individuals what he does to institutions and vice versa. He's the same kind of infectious figure. I think that's a really interesting way to put it.
0: Yeah, and, and I think in that respect, there is some broader lessons from Harry Potter that you can extrapolate, like beware of these infections, the idea of fascism, blood purity, security at the sake of uh, victimizing the other. These infections exist in our own world. And if we treat them as like a sociological disease, we are better apt to cure them than if we treat them in another way. Just like with the crux, you, you need the vaccine to stop the crux. And that is Something that can destroy it like the sword of Gryffindor.
1: But until then, you got to self-isolate with your little quarantine pod and your tent and you got to cut each other's hair because you cannot go to a salon.
0: Absolutely. And you want to kill each other at some points. Yeah. But then you realize you all love each other and you come back together.
1: A couple of other things to call out before we get into kind of deeper analysis. The casting of the brief uh, but wondrous casting of Bill Nye as uh, Rufus Scrimger, the Ministry of Magic, who takes over for Cornelius Fudge uh, is wonderful. It's, you know, we're just checking off boxes on all the great English actors uh, who we can throw into this series. So, very excited to see him in the opening shots of the movie. Uh, there's also one scene that we got a specific request to talk about, uh, not for the dinner table, uh, podcast friends of ours.
0: Oh, can I just say something real yeah. quick? I was listening to not for the dinner table's latest episode. Uh, they're called mallets. That's what you use to play <laughs> a xylophone or hit a gong. It's called a mallet, just so you know.
1: Great. Uh, But we got a specific request to talk about the Harry and Hermione dance scene, which is honestly one of my favorite moments in the movie. Uh, It's one rare moment of relief from all the grimness and darkness of it when two friends, uh, you know, in, in the throes of like losing Ron, not knowing how to proceed, not knowing where to go next and feeling really hopeless, just find a moment to find some joy together and some vulnerability. I think it's quite, quite beautiful. Uh, I'm not someone who ever shipped Harry and Hermione in this series. So like I never saw or looked for any romantic chemistry for them on screen. So it's not something that hits me as like a romantic sequence at all. It feels very much like we are stuck with each other. We wish Ron was here. We are very, very sad about it, but we love each other deeply and I'm going to hold on tightly to whoever is here with me in this moment. It's a very 2020 moment.
0: I totally agree. I think it's one of the more touching moments. It's a moment where like you kind of pause and like, wait a minute, though they are of age, these are still kids and these are kids processing grief and trauma on a very, very deep level and a deep scale. Like you said, they're isolated. They're alone. Harry doesn't have a wand. They don't have their best friends slash love interest. And in this moment of deep despair and agony, these two characters have a moment and it is just a moment because as soon as the dance is done, you can see the look on Hermione's face. She turns instantly to sadness. You know, it, it goes from, yeah, this is fun. Let's dance. And then like, yeah, we, we are in a tough spot here. We are friendless, allyless, directionless, And just flying by the seat of our pants at this point, presumably they're going to run out of supplies at some point, you know, well, they're wizards that can probably conjure things, but you get my meaning. They're in a very dark place. And in the darkest moments of our lives, in the moments when we are at our lowest, I hope I have a friend that will encourage me to dance and, I also agree that the whole shipping thing, weird thing. I don't know if I feel comfortable saying whether I ship <laughs> someone or not, just a li- a linguistical thing for me. It's how, you know, you're old. You're like the kids are calling it shipping. But anyway, um, I never really saw a romantic connection between Harry or Hermione in the, in the entire movies and all the books. I think it's pretty clear that there's an intense attraction between Hermione and Ron, and I think that is made all the more bittersweet when you see them dance because they both have this same love for Ron, this intense attraction to and love for and are processing that he walked out on them.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're both missing Ron. They're both also missing a loved one. Harry's missing Ginny. Like, it's very complex, and it's just like, okay, let me reach out for this moment and find a very, very small moment of joy with the loved one who is sharing this tent with me.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great, great scene of just letting these kids look and feel like kids processing all of the craziness that's happening in the world around them. Something that we see today, kids still have to deal with all of the problems of the world. And often they are treated as if they don't have a voice or they don't have a say or they can't understand what's going on. In this, we see these kids get a moment of joy between them, and it's so fleeting, and I think it's done incredibly well. Yeah, well said. And I think it's part of what makes that sequence so effective for me, the idea that they give time for these characters to be these characters. They allow them to act how you would think they would act in this great trauma. Though we don't get the traditional Harry Potter feel, um we don't get the traditional Harry Potter settings. This is something that I think they do to great effect in allowing the kids be kids in that one moment. Yeah,
1: wonderful. So I want to jump into some of our deeper analysis here. Uh, but before we do, you mentioned it at the beginning. Uh, we have done an episode on the Deathly Hallows before uh, that was specifically about the tale of the three brothers, the uh, the story from the Tales of Beetle the Bard that Hermione reads at the house of Xenophilius Lovegood. And if you want to check that out, it is episode 40. It's called The Tale of the Three Brothers. And that one goes into a lot of detail about the story and where the characters correspond Uh, and some of the origins in myth and folklore. So that's a lot of fun. I would recommend checking that out as a companion to this episode.
0: Yeah, I read the entire New Testament in preparation for that episode. Derek read
1: the Bible. It wasn't
0: my first time, but it was my (laughs) first time in a long time.
1: Yeah, I was very proud of you. Praise Odin. Praise, praise Odin and Caridwin. Um, But I am once again this week on Artifact Watch, As we are on Baby Watch and Potter Watch, we're also on Artifact Watch. And so I wanted to bring in some of the sort of legendary antecedents around the Deathly Hallows themselves and some of the other artifacts that are introduced or reintroduced in uh, Hallows Part One. So the first one that I want to focus on is the fact that the Sword of Gryffindor, which we were introduced to all the way back in the Chamber of Secrets makes a new appearance. It comes back in this installment, which is really exciting. Uh, You'll remember that the first time the sword of Gryffindor appeared, it materialized inside the sorting hat for Harry to pull out in his moment of need, proving once and for all that he is a true Gryffindor and a worthy Gryffindor. It very much echoes King Arthur pulling the sword from the stone, signifying that he is the true sovereign of Britain.
0: Yeah, I think there's a little King Arthur in Harry, just a wee touch. Just a wee bit. It's almost like J.K. Rowling is from England.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice and cheeky there. Uh, But of course, we know that in this installment, uh, the sword of Gryffindor appears not in the sorting hat, but at the bottom of a frozen lake, which once again echoes another part of the Arthurian legend. Uh, In most versions of the legend, the sword Arthur pulls from the stone and Excalibur are two different swords, and they're often in later texts uh, conflated into being one sword, just Excalibur. Um, But Excalibur is officially given to Arthur in earlier versions of the legend by the lady of the lake, the fairy woman who lives in the lake and bestows this uh, gift upon the king. So again, in Hallow's, the Sword of Gryffindor is presented to Harry as a test. He has to follow the Silver Doe, another kind of legendary figure that looks a lot like the White Hart or the White Stag that usually represents some kind of spiritual quest for the characters or an uncatchable beast. But Harry is uh, unable to get this sword by ordinary means or ordinary magical means. He's not able to take the easy way out by using a summoning charm saying Accio Sword. He's gonna have to put himself through some sort of test to once again prove that he is Gryffindor enough to achieve the sword. So, in the book, he actually thinks through this and thinks about the qualities. He wonders, what qualities of Gryffindor will I have to display in order to achieve the sword? And he realizes he has to show, quote, daring, nerve, and chivalry, end quote. Very Arthurian. So, Harry strips down and jumps into the freezing water in a very, very ballsy move that puts him on the level of chivalric heroes like Godric Gryffindor and Albus Dumbledore and Arthur Pendragon from Legend. So it's a very interesting connection that we once again see the Arthurian legend paralleled in how Harry receives the sword. In the 13th century Vulgate cycle, which is a really landmark text in the Arthurian legend, uh, it's a bunch of disparate authors writing up different parts of the legend that eventually got strung together into one text. It's also known as the Lancelot Grail cycle, written in Old French. Uh, Merlin, who is Arthur's chief mentor, of course, takes him to the Lady of the Lake to receive Excalibur, and she bestows upon him both the magical sword and a scabbard in which to hold it. Merlin asks Arthur, which of these gifts do you prefer, the sword or the scabbard? And Arthur says, the sword, duh. Like, obviously I prefer the sword. It's a magical sword. But Merlin says, actually, you should really prize the scabbard over the sword. And the reason for this is that while the sword is a powerful weapon, the scabbard has been woven with enchantments that will prevent the wearer from losing any blood in battle. The irony of this is that just before he goes into combat with Mordred uh, on the battlefield, Arthur loses the sword. It's usually stolen away by deception by uh, Morgan Le Fay, his half-sister, and he ends up dying in that battle because he did not prize the scabbard as much as he should have. I bring this up because I think there's also a major correspondence between the Arthurian legend and the artifacts of the Deathly Hallows themselves. So not just the obvious comparison between Excalibur and the sword of Gryffindor. I'd like to argue that Excalibur can also correspond to the Elder Wand, uh, the unbeatable sword, the magical sword versus the unbeatable wand. Uh, And then the scabbard corresponds a lot to the Cloak of Invisibility, which tends to be undervalued among the Hallows people go for the flashier, the elder wand. That's the one that they want. That's the one that people know about. That's the one Voldemort is after because an unbeatable wand means you can never be beaten, right? But the cloak of invisibility has tons of other purposes. It can shield you, it can protect you, it can protect others. And it can be used for other purposes, and it does not draw the kind of attention to you that a magical sword or an unbeatable wand might draw to you. So I think those two artifacts have some really interesting correspondences in the legend and also uh, you know help us to meditate on uh, where our priorities lie, especially when it comes to heroism uh, versus villainy. I'd argue, too, that the resurrection stone has a bit of a correspondence in the Arthurian legend uh, that's also part of the Vulgate cycle, the 13th century cycle. And that's, of course, the Holy Grail, because both the resurrection stone and the Holy Grail have a regenerative or restorative quality as an artifact and are something to be quested after, just like the wand, the sword, the scabbard, the cloak, so I just wanted to draw some of those parallels between legend and Harry Potter and see how the characters react uh, and how the characters achieve those artifacts in correspondence with the heroic characters of the past.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you really see, let me ask you this, do you see Harry as like King Arthur reborn?
1: I mean, yeah, I, I very much do. I think uh, that the, the parallels to King Arthur are, pretty strong from right off the bat. We have the fair unknown archetype that I think we talked about in the Philosopher's Stone and the Sorcerer's Stone uh, about how he goes from being a character raised in obscurity to coming into his uh, noble inheritance and realizing his true qualities. We also have these obvious artifacts that correspond to the legend and we have you know this character coming into his own as a chivalrous protector of others uh, and a self-sacrificing leader uh, who who very much feels in the Arthurian vein.
0: Yeah, so many of the narratives that we have to date have their, their roots in the ancient heroes of old. And you mentioned the fair unknown. That is a trope that not only is true of King Arthur, who is raised in obscurity, That's also true of Perseus. It's true of Moses. It's true of many other characters that I can't think of that are separated from their noble parentage from birth and then have to uncover as they grow up or get into adulthood who they were meant to be and accept this adventure that is laid out before them. That's Luke Skywalker.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: You know, and that is something that we see kind of baked into the idea that there could be a quote-unquote from an ancient world or medieval world perspective, a commoner who has a bigger and more nobler destiny that is not actually a commoner. They are actually of noble blood and of noble stock and steed and are able to go out there and do these great things. And along the way, you have the magical items. Harry has to twice draw this sword from a magical sort of sword in the stone moment, one where it's coming from a lake just like in King Arthur, the other in the, um, he draws the sword from the sorting hat, similar to the sword being drawn from the stone in King Arthur. So I do think we can look at Harry Potter as the sort of prince that was promised.
1: Yeah, yeah, if you will. Uh, No, I think that's that's an interesting thing to bring up. But the other thing to meditate on is how non-possessive Harry is of this identity. Uh, how non-possessive he is of many of these artifacts as well, how he is willing to share them uh, in particular in the moment when he, he urges Ron to destroy the Horcrux in this movie, I think is really significant because King Arthur would destroy the Horcrux himself. You know, he might delegate some activities to his Knights errant, but in this moment, Harry recognizes that the load is shared by all of them and Ron is the one who needs to overcome this particular obstacle, and that Ron has the same kind of Gryffindor qualities as he does, and so he hands over the magical sword that he has just achieved. Uh, so I think it's it's an important uh, thing to meditate on that, that Harry is always going to uh, he's always going to step up and be the hero when he needs to be, but he also recognizes heroism in others.
0: Yeah, and it's it's interesting how the act of destroying the Horcruxes gets spread out. They are not all done by Harry. Yeah, and that is certainly a symbol of a little more egalitarianism. It's not that Harry Potter maybe he is the prince that was promised, but he's not going to rule with an iron fist once he becomes the High King of the Wizarding World. You know, like he's going to uh, be someone that recognizes uh, the value and worth of others. He's going to be. We've already seen him learn to become a great teacher in Order of the Phoenix, and this is kind of a teachable moment for Ron. Ron, if you're going to come back and you're going to come back into the fold, thank you for saving my life. But now you have the job of destroying this thing that wed put the wedge between us. You have to confront the very fears that are real within you that drove you away, which is your self of your uh, your self worth, your feeling of inadequacy your fear that you cannot be loved, your fear that you will always be second fiddle, and it is Ron that has to do it, and it is Harry who puts the sword in his hand, something that King Arthur would never do.
1: Right. Yeah, and and you know, to be fair, the uh, the symbol of Camelot and the symbol of Arthur's court in the legend is an el- is an egalitarian one, is one where there is a round table and everyone has an equal seat, rather than someone sitting at the highest post. But the difference, really, I think, is that Harry's uh, Harry's leadership is serendipitous. He is kind of thrust into leadership in most situations because he's the fittest guy for the job, not because he seeks it. Uh, you know he steps into the role that he needs to step into, but he is more than willing to share the load. He is uh, he is desperate to share the load. In most cases, he needs his friends. He needs Ron and Hermione. He needs his mentors, and he's not he's not too proud to say that.
0: Yeah, and unlike the heroes of the ancient world who are doing it for glory's sake, Harry Potter's doing it for uh, because he has to. Yeah. Right. He is doing it because he doesn't really have a choice. He's going to fight this evil that's growing in the wizarding world called Voldemort, and he's going to confront it because that's who he is. But it's not done for the sake of glory the way that Thor might do it for the sake of glory, the way that Achilles, Jason or, yeah. from the Argonauts would do it, the way that Heracles will do it to be for the sake of glory and fame and being known as the greatest hero. Harry's not really concerned with that as much as these ancient heroes. I think that's one of the things that puts it, Harry Potter, in a more modern context.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that we have kept coming back to, right? As we have compared uh, the Harry Potter series, especially as we have gone through and said, okay, here's where the Philosopher's Stone lives in Legend and Mythology. Here's where the Basilisk lives in Legend and Mythology. Here's where the Black Dog or such and such, whatever uh, artifact or uh, mythological reference we are calling out, uh, we have consistently said, okay, yes, it has this echo in mythology, folklore, and fairy tale, but it's always taking those motifs and evolving them into a more contemporary context and infusing them with questions of enlightenment ideals or of free will and choice or of the power of love and rationality. So I think that's interesting that you you kind of uh, framed it that way.
0: Well, if you think of the central sort of metaphysical conceit of ancient myth and which is also to say ancient religion, it is the belief that the supernatural and the natural world are overlapping onto each other. That right around the corner that thing that moves at the corner of your eye is probably an elf or a goblin, or a demon, and that these supernatural forces have a heavy hand in shaping the events of the regular normal folk, and that is the sort of central thinking behind the mythopoetic thought structure, the pre-logical thought structure, and that echoes throughout our thinking throughout the ages, and still is with us to date, and exists in our storytelling. If the magical world is always there and always present, but right around the corner of our eye, right right before we turn on the lights, there is magic in the room and then the lights push it away. One thing that you see with Harry Potter is Harry Potter takes that concept literally. And it says that, yes, this magical world does live right on right beside the mundane. And no, we can't actually see it and access it even if some of us sense that it's there, there is this hidden magical world. And it inducts Harry into that magical world, ripping him from the mundane. That's the fair unknown piece. And this mythology that we see that Rawling creates has grown up and deals with the problems that we see modernity dealing with. So in the ancient myth, what's the problem? It's a beast. It's a rogue titan. It's a... It's a vicious storm. It is a a,
1: prophecy. Yeah, Yeah.
0: it it is a, you know, unruly deity. It's
1: a plague brought on by a sphinx.
0: Absolutely. It's all of these, these problems. It's a riddle that guards your path on the way to Thebes. All of these things are the problems of the ancient world, which is to say a lot of these problems of the ancient world are material in nature. The natural world is dangerous going into it is dangerous. Make your sacrifices to the local river God or the river might swallow you up when you attempt to build a bridge across it, echoing to the three brothers who build the bridge and death gets angry, right? And these are part of the thinkings that we see in the ancient world and it reflects the problems of the ancient world. As we get to where Harry Potter sits as a contemporary fantasy set now, not years in the past, not in another dimension not in a you know mythical, earth-like, England-like place called Westeros or Middle Earth. It's taking place here in modern-day England. The problems of that world grow up with the problems of modernity. And what are the problems that they have? It's no longer the magical beasts. Hell, you can go to school and learn about the magical beasts. It's no longer just an evil witch that might give you a curse, no, those problems are not the problems. Those are the problems that the wizards of the past face. The problems now, the problems are, are we free? Are we safe? How do we unlock our safety? To what point should our safety and our freedom overlap? How do we uh, slow down the stem of tide to authoritarianism? How do we slow down our, the modern problem of fascism? the idea that our society can be prosperous by worshiping the state at the oppressed of the other. These problems are the problems that Harry Potter is working out, is trying to get itself through. These modern problems are existing in that magical world. And in this respect, I would argue Harry Potter is one of the most successful modern uh, mythologies not just because it made a boatload of money, which it did, which obviously makes it successful, but what makes this movie stand out compared to other successful franchises? Think of any Michael Bay movie. These are clearly fantasies. Think of other great franchises out there, such as Star Wars and its uh, sequel trilogy. What makes Harry Potter hold up under scrutiny better than some of those other installments is the fact that it puts this ancient conceit, the magical world is right around the corner, and gives it the problems we are facing today. And sometimes that problem that we is a structural problem, such as the fight against fascism, sometimes it's just a commonplace problem, like how do I get the girl I like to pay attention to me? Or how do I um, get the boy I like to notice me? You know, and so sometimes the problems are very macro and sometimes they're very micro, but they're all very contemporary, but it's in that magical world. It's like mythology has grown up with us and here is what the modern myths would look like.
1: Yeah. And at the same time, it's sort of asking the question of like, what, it, what is the purpose of our mythology and how valuable is our mythology really? Because if you live in a world where the artifacts and the beasts and the legends uh, of the ancient world live alongside you... Are they going to have the same kind of weight that they would for someone to whom they're just a mystery? So we see the, the constant questioning, if not outright undermining, of things like the Philosopher's Stone, which you know, is sought after as this great prolonger of life. But then at the end of that story, it's settled on that this thing probably shouldn't exist in our world and we should seek a more harmonious relationship with death we see the undermining of things like prophecy, which even when we get something close to a true prophecy in the one that that prophesies that Harry and Voldemort are going to have to uh, go head to head and one will have to kill the other, even when we get something like that that seems legitimate, it's still questioned. It's still given uh, an air of choice. It's still given the... Uh, the sense that it only is coming true because it is self-fulfilling, because Voldemort decided to make it true and he decided to go after the boy who was prophesied and made Harry the Chosen One. So it is very much interested in questioning and interrogating the veracity and the, uh, the value of those mythological ideas or artifacts, even though they are proven to be real. Uh, So I think you're onto something really interesting here about the series as a whole and its relationship to those sort of folkloric aspects of it. Uh, You know, it's what sets it apart fundamentally from uh, other fantasy series like The Lord of the Rings uh, and Game of Thrones. It's not allegory. Harry Potter is not allegory and it is not mythology. It is pulling very intently from those kinds of fantasy stories, but it is very much making a choice not to be those. It's making a choice to be a very intentional, very enlightenment fantasy.
0: Yeah, and enlightenment, you mean a Western European enlightenment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which if you aren't familiar, dear listeners, it's the philosophical movement that ushered the world out of the medieval and into modernity. It's because of the Western European Enlightenment. You have the French Revolution, the rise of Napoleon, and the dismantling of the old regime of feudalism in Europe, and the American Revolution. Go USA!
1: USA. Yeah, and that's that's what can give you this interesting incongruity between the, the trappings of the world, right? Because we're we're right alongside the medieval and the ancient. We spend most of our time in the Harry Potter series in a medieval castle in the Scottish Highlands but we also have a very fully functioning modern democracy that is flirting with authoritarianism.
0: Well, I would say it's flirting with fascism as a way to bridge the gap to authoritarianism. <laughs> sure. See our episode on Order of the Phoenix. Sorry, I'm being yeah. a little cheeky.
1: But it is letting these things live side by side to really heighten and show Uh, that these things are incongruous and say, okay, how do we wrestle ourselves into the modern world and still reconcile that with the fact that magic is real and we have access to it and we can control the natural world to a certain extent?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, in any of these great stories, one of those conceits is that there is something supernatural in the universe and that it exists and in Harry Potter... It is the channeling of magic through spells and wands and creatures and items and 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 the like.
1: And so on and so forth.
0: And everything else you could imagine, it's in there. Ghosts and dark wizards and yes, wizard Nazis. And another thing I just wanna kinda bring up here as we are getting close to wrapping on the episode is the theme of, of sacrifice. And we see this in Dobby, a character that is brought back after the second movie, who we don't see in all the other movies, Dobby is a bigger role in the books, comes back in this installment at a crucial moment, and Dobby gives his life to save Harry Potter and everyone else. And it reminds us that sacrifice is something that you will have to do to achieve amazing things people will have to put all in, or house elves in this case, or free elves, I should say, have to put everything on the line in order to stop things like the rise of Voldemort's of the world. And it's something that is done to great effect. It tears Harry Potter apart, so much so that he, to honor Dobby, doesn't even want to bury him using magic. It must be done, he says, quote, properly. The idea that they have to put their sweat and toil in order to honor the memory who, without Dobby, Harry Potter would have died in that cell at the hands of Voldemort, Bellatrix, Lestrange, and the like. Because of Dobby, which is another way to say, because of friendship and because of kindness, Harry has the ally that he needs to get out of this scenario and more allies are going to have to lay down their life. It is a theme that we are seeing time and again. It is introduced in Goblet and this movie kills one of the most powerful wizards other than Dumbledore off screen in Mad-Eye Moody. Hedwig is dispatched unceremoniously and cruelly in the very beginning and it ends with the death of Dobby. And this is something that we should all, pardon me, we should all meditate on as we look back at the Harry Potters, that great things like stopping the rise of evil require sacrifice. And that sacrifice is so hard and it is so terrible. And it's something that we should always remember that Dobby was a free elf.
1: Uh, I'm glad that you brought that up. I said at the beginning that I think this was, I think this is one of the more affecting deaths in the series and certainly one of the most affecting deaths uh, in The Deathly Hallows, both parts one and two. And where most of the losses in this story, the most of the losses in Hallows one and Hallows two are going to be unceremonious, are going to happen off screen, are going to happen quickly and with almost no time to breathe and no time to mourn, this one is given a lot of time. Uh, and I think there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, you know, a huge reason for that is that this character has kind of always been there and willing to do literally anything for Harry, and so it, it requires a certain level of reverence uh, because of the power of their relationship. But the 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 fact that it stops and uh, and meditates on Harry's grief for a moment and has him manually dig the grave for Dobby uh, also calls upon so many ancient funerary rites and reminds us how important it has been uh, throughout the ages, throughout so many cultures to bury our dead and to honor our dead uh, and taking a moment to honor this one uh, this one person who gave their life. I'll say that Dobby is a person, this one elf. Uh, it doesn't make up for the fact that we can't do the same for Mad-Eye. It doesn't make up for the fact that we can't do the same for Hedwig, but it does it does give us a chance to say our intention is to honor and bury and send our dead onto the next world with honor and with grace uh, as best we can, and we're going to lose a lot more. We're going to lose a lot more people in the next
0: installment. Of course, I can. Yeah. I'm an elf.
1: I'm an elf. Uh, and his last, his last words are such a beautiful place to be with friends. Dobby is happy to be with his friend Harry Potter.
0: And you know that is the thing that will ultimately, as we know, when we get to the end, that's going to push Harry Potter over the finish line. It's his friends. Voldemort has followers. They fear him. Some even worship him, but he doesn't have friends. And until next time, be kind.
1: Be kind. In a very, very ballsy move that puts him on the level of Godric Gryffindor, Albus Dumbledore, Dumbledore, Dumbledore. <laughs>